If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke 5. And we'll be in 33 through 39 this morning. Finally, it's taken us many a weeks, but we're getting through chapter 5 of Luke. And so we're going to be in 33 through 39. It'll also be behind me on the screen, my translation for you to follow along as well. Um, If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's uh, read this together. Luke 5 and 33 through 39. God's word says, And they said to him, Jesus, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Humans once opposed coffee and refrigeration. Here's why we often hate new stuff. This is the title of an article from Washington Post that came by several years ago, wherein the author, Stephen Overly, says the following. Listen to what he says. Humans have a habit of stalling their own progress. From coffee to mechanical refrigeration to genetically altered food... History is littered with innovations that sparked resistance before becoming fixtures in everyday life. The same theme is playing out today as some lawmakers and consumers question the safety of driverless cars, the economic impact of automation, or the security of mobile banking. He continues, in hindsight, opposition to innovations such as mechanical farm equipment or recorded music may seem ludicrous. But for the past 600 years of human history, help explain why humans often oppose new technologies and why that pattern of opposition continues to this day. He then cites Harvard law professor, or a Harvard professor who wrote a book about this phenomena titled Innovation and Its Enemies, Why People Resist New Technologies. And in the book, this author Juma asserts that people don't fear innovation simply because the technology is new but because innovation often means losing a piece of their identity or lifestyle. Innovation can also separate people from nature or their sense of purpose, two things that Juma argues are fundamental to the human experience. Further, this author says that people sometimes oppose innovation even when it seems to be in their best interest. Humans make decisions about new innovations with their gut rather than evidence, and that people typically don't fear new technology, they fear the perceived loss. It will bring. Who among us can't relate to this if we're being honest? Especially in the age we live in, technology, you'll agree with me, moves at a speed that's hard to keep up with. Don't you think? It's so quick. I think it's fair to say that we've all, at some point, felt overwhelmed by the changes in technology. Is that fair to say? But Juma is right. Our apprehensiveness with technology is a microcosm of what we really feel, which is change change. We can't help but eye new things with suspicion. We can't help but to wonder at times why change is necessary at all. Well, what is wrong with the old thing? It worked just fine. Have you ever said this? 
Why do I need the new thing? Who, who among us hasn't asked those questions? I know I have. But it turns out being fearful of change or eyeing new things with suspicion is not something unique to us or to any generation. Here in this story this morning, we see this exact thing happening. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom that requires a new perspective and a new way of doing things. And guess what? Pharisees? I don't like it. <laughs> they don't like it. They don't understand it. it. It confuses them. It irks them. It makes them angry at Jesus, thinking he is an impious troublemaker who needs to be confronted and eventually dealt with. But what is needed in order to reconcile sinful man to God is not the same old, same old. Business as usual, status quo thinking, no matter how comfortable that might be. Rather, what is required is something earth-shattering, Something never seen before. Something utterly new. And this is precisely what Jesus brings. And this is what our text this morning bears out. So let's consider three points from this text in our time together. I'll just give them to you straight away. A new way, a new outlook, and a new life. A new way, a new outlook, and a new life. So point number one, a new way. So the scene opens with Jesus being asked a question on the heels of his eating. Remember, this lavish meal with tax collectors and the newest disciple Levi and his friends. Why don't you and your disciples fast? John's disciples fast. The Pharisees' disciples fast. But you don't. Why? That's the question that's being asked to Jesus. Now, for us, this might seem a strange question. But for first century Jews, this was an important one because fasting was a crucial part of their religious identity. While the law only prescribed fasting one day a year on the Day of Atonement, over time, fasting became a sign of one's religious piety. There were multiple reasons one would fast. Some fasted in hopes of God's delivery. Others fasted in hopes of turning aside some calamity. Some fasted when they were mourning, and, and the more religious you were, guess what? The more you fasted. The most zealous fasted as much as twice a week. And, and you can see this if you think of the, the parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the, ta the Pharisee openly brags about fasting this often, right? I, I fast twice a week because that was a sign of his piety. Says James Edward, although not a legal requirement except on the Day of Atonement, Fasting had become in Jesus' day a prerequisite of religious commitment, a sign of atonement of sin and humiliation and penance before God and a general aid to prayer. So you combine, I mean, just combine this with the scene that came right before it that we talked about last week. You, you combine the fact that fasting was a sign of religious piety and zeal with the fact that Jesus is eating and interacting with what? Sinners. And tax collectors, what do you have? You have people who are wondering if Jesus is impious. They're essentially asking, what sort of religious leader is this man? He hangs out with tax collectors. He never fasts. He speaks with authority. He forgives sins. He heals. We have never seen someone like this before. And that is precisely the point. To answer this question, Jesus gives three pictures. You see them? One is of a wedding. One is of old and new garments, 
and one is of old and new wine and wine skin. Jesus asks, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is a rhetorical question. He expects the answer to be what? No, that would be absurd. A wedding is a big, happy, festive party with lots of good foods. Fasting in such a circumstance would make exactly zero sense. So says Jesus, the bridegroom is here. So fasting would be inappropriate. There will be a time for fasting, he says, but not now. Then he gives these two pictures that his audience would be familiar with. They both communicate the essential point of this section, okay? <laughs> that Jesus, this is the point of this section that we've read. Jesus is a bringer of a new era, a new kingdom, a new way to approach God, and a new way to relate to God and man. Understand, what Jesus is saying is that he is not an additive or addition or a mere next step in the link of salvation history. He is saying that he is salvation history. That's a big old claim, isn't it? He is salvation history. It's not that the old is bad. He never says that, does he? It's just that the new is infinitely better because he is infinitely better. So the question that people are asking is wrong in every way. The question is not, how does Jesus fit in with the old way? Rather, the question is, how do the old ways fit with Jesus? What does the old way mean in light of God doing a new thing through him? It's the old ways that need evaluation in light of Jesus, not the other way around. So Jesus says, no one who buys a new garment uses it to patch up an old garment, which is a logical point, right? To do this, you would, need, you would not only not fix the old garment, but you would also ruin the new. Like imagine if you had an old jacket, all right, that was discolored, had holes in it. Any of you guys still hanging on to your old REO Speedwagon jean jacket or anything like that? Old jacket, discolored, had holes in it. You cannot throw it away. You refuse. And it's falling apart, okay? So you buy a new jacket. What w- would it make sense for you to rip up the old jacket in order to patch up, rip up the new jacket in order to patch up the old jacket? Would that make sense? That would make no sense. Jesus says if you use your new garment to patch up the old garment, they'll both be ruined, right? Because when you... When you wash it, the new cloth that you take, took by destroying the new garment will shrink and rip and ruin both, and they'll both be rendered useless. Then what will you have really accomplished? Then he says, if you get new wine, you wouldn't put it in old wineskins because the new wine would break the old. Jesus' audience knew this picture. They, they knew wineskins were made from animal skin, and over time they would become brittle and weak. They would have no elasticity to expand. And so if you put new wine in, and during the fermenting process it released these gases, the new wine would cause the skins to expand. And so if they were old and brittle, what would happen? They would break. And then what? Old wineskin would be broken and useless. And the new wine would be all over the ground, and it too would be useless. New wine requires new wine skins. Jesus, essentially this is the point, Jesus is too great to fit into any system or structure, expectation, or idea about the Messiah. He didn't come to comfort people in the safety of their religious piety and say, you got the right idea, I'm just here for moral support. No, Jesus, as N.T. Wright put it, confronts people with the terrifying thought 
that the hurricane has become human. Fire has become flesh. Life itself has become life and walked in our midst, which says, right, is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world and not a casual affair or business as usual. This is what Jesus has been getting at the whole time. Whether it was with the healing of the leper, the forgiving of sins of the paralytic, or what he will say about the Sabbath in the next chapter. I mean, think about the idea of him presenting himself as the bridegroom and those who receive his salvation as the bride. You guys realize the claim he's making here. If you're a first century Jew, what you know and what you're familiar with is the picture in the Old Testament of God being the bridegroom married to the people of God and the ultimate fulfillment of this marriage happening at the end of the age. So what is Jesus saying here? What's he doing? Edwards explains, Jesus does not allude to his messianic office, but presumes the prerogatives of God himself. Similar to the forgiveness of sins in 524, Jesus invites hearers to supply their own answer to his identity. Both episodes, powerful though implicitly, provoke hearers to recognize that in the mission of Jesus, the person of God is present. Jesus is saying that the old way of relating to God, of atoning for sin, of making penance for misdeeds, have been circumvented into a new way to get to God. Now, God has come to you. Is that not earth-shattering news? They don't have a category for this. Now, now the blood of bulls and goats are of no effect because God himself has become man to be the sacrifice for human sin. Who would have thought that? Now the misplaced idea that the religious had on how to obtain salvation has been flipped on its head. It hasn't been reformed. <laughs> it's been utterly remade. Jesus brings with him salvation embodied. Whereas you formerly tried to do all these things to get to God and tried to please him and try to gain his acceptance, now God has come to you. And he has in his person fulfilled everything the Old Testament was trying to do. Everything. And this has been the point and plan all along. This is truly a new way. The people want to know how much blood is enough. How much prayer is enough? How much fasting is enough? How, how much good deeds? How many are enough? How much do I have to do to get God to accept me fully and finally? And the answer is, you can't do enough. None of that will ever be enough. You're too sinful. There's nothing you can do to get to God and gain His acceptance. And that's bad news. Is that, that's the worst news ever. <laughs> but here's the good news Jesus embodies here. There's nothing you can do to get to God and gain his acceptance. So he came down and took on flesh and did it all for you to get to you and bring you near. That's how unable we are. That's how loving he is. The, the people question Jesus because he's unlike anything the people have ever seen before. Because never before has God come down <laughs> and took on flesh and blood in order to live and die on behalf of his enemies. He even alludes to this in verse 35, doesn't he? Though they don't know, they, they don't know what this means yet. 
And they certainly do not have a category for God coming and absorbing their penalty. Who would conceive of such things? It's like man cannot help but picture salvation as this ladder that reaches up to heaven. And each good thing we do gets us another rung. Every religion, right? Every religion has some form of this. Every single one. Do a good deed, get another rung. Say a nice thing, get another rung. Hold door open for somebody, get another rung. Help someone out, get another rung. Be a good citizen, get another rung. And in this conception, we could comfort ourselves because even when we know we're sinful, we could tell ourselves at least I'm further up the ladder than other people are. And at the end of our lives, tell ourselves surely we'll be high enough for God to be happy. But in this system, there's no peace. There's no rest. There's no joy because it's exhausting and uncertain. Because no matter how high we climb, we know we're never closer to heaven. You know what Jesus is saying here, though? He's saying that the ladder is infinite and impossible to climb, so he just went ahead and bypassed it on the way down. And then he kicked it over. (laughs) And he says, I did it all, and you will find no rest until you rest in me. And when you do, we can have a party. That's what he's saying here. (laughs) Now, no other religion says this. No, No other religion says that God became man to pay the penalty for man's transgression against him. Jesus is utterly unique which is why the people are so confused. They can't conceive of the newness Jesus brings. Dick Lucas once gave an illustration where he he recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great, religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their ritual? We don't have priests (laughs) to meditate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priest? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor? And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. At least not if we conceive it as what man, where where man must curry God's favor, because Jesus has God's favor and provided an acceptable sacrifice so that the extent with which we have God's favor depends solely on our attachment to Jesus. Men want to focus on what they could do to please God. Jesus brings the bad news that there's nothing we could do. No amount of piety, ritual, or deeds can reconcile us to God. Do you realize that, friend? Do you? We have a better chance of climbing to the moon on a rope made of sand than we do to close the gap between us and God. That's bad news. But Jesus is giving the good news. He, equal with God the Father, has come to close the gap. See, Jesus provides a new way to God but in his person. Now, Jesus said it himself in John 14. You know it. He is the way, the truth, 
the life. No one, and he means it. No one can come to the Father except through him. He is the entrance. He is the door. He is the only avenue to be saved. He doesn't just show us the way, you understand. He is the way. And there's no other. Friend, is this not the best news? Is not the best news? Have you heard any better news than this? That God has moved heaven and earth to get to you. That salvation is not found in how good you could be, but how great Jesus was. Well, I think, infinitely more importantly, Jesus thinks, if you receive this news, your outlook will be completely altered. Which brings us to our point number two. A new outlook. A new outlook. I want you to consider again Jesus' picture of a wedding. Why, why does he say this in response to the question of fasting? This is why. Because fasting was connected with mourning. People fasted because of death. They fasted because Rome was occupying them and they were hoping for deliverance and they would show, you know what they would do? And this should remind you of what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. They would show how sad they were. They want everybody to know they were fasting. They would change their physical appearance. They would go without a bath. They would, they would put on dirt on themselves. They would wear torn clothes. They would contort their face so it, it looked miserable. And, and they'd go out in public so everyone could see how sad and pious they were. They, they connected piety with dour seriousness. Jesus doesn't, does he? Jesus' point is that this is no time for sadness. It's time for celebration. And why? Because he's here. Isn't that what he's saying, essentially? How can you be sad when Jesus is here? How can you be mourning when Jesus is your champion? Can I ask you, friend, doesn't Jesus bring you joy? But what's better than to know you have been part of what Martin Luther called a happy exchange, in which Jesus took on the penalty for your sin and you talk, took on his righteousness? Happy exchange indeed, yes. So says Jesus, there's no time to be sad. There's a wedding. Who's sad at a wedding? How inappropriate would that be? What kind of party pooper is sad at a wedding? Now, there will be a time when fasting is appropriate, but that's for three days. When the bridegroom is taken and suffers and dies. But while Jesus is alive, it's time to celebrate. Imagine going to a wedding and being told that there's no food, no drink, no dancing, and no music. What would you think of that? That vibes wouldn't match the occasion, right? <laughs> or imagine if the bride was walking down the aisle crying, sighing, and groaning. Don't look at your wives, please. Or imagine <laughs> you get married, and in the mail someone sends you a sympathy card. Or, or think of a different analogy. Imagine if you're going to a birthday party for a six-year-old. And the place is filled with six and eight-year-olds ready to have a blast, right? And the mom asks, who's hungry? And the kids go, yeah. And then the mom goes inside, comes out with a tray full of broccoli and cauliflower with a center bowl filled with sugar-free, salt-free, taste-free dip. No pizza, no birthday cake, no ice cream so that the kids can return to their parents on a three-hour sugar high. Just some veggies and dip that resembles Elmer's glue. Is there something technically wrong with the vegetarian alternative. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's also not appropriate, right? You don't serve broccoli and cauliflower at small children's birthday parties. 
And you don't fast when the bridegroom that Israel's been waiting for finally shows up. Do you see? That's what Jesus is getting at. What Jesus brings, which is himself, ought to evoke joy for those who see what all this really means. The offer of forgiveness in the person of Jesus should be the source of Christians' unending joy. Right? Is that the case for you? We may connect devotion to God as rigid seriousness. You ever think like that? You ever grow up in a tradition like that? But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Those who claim to know Jesus but are critical grumps all the live long day with seemingly no joy or happiness may claim Jesus, but you really have to wonder which Jesus they're talking about. How can you know this Jesus of the Bible in light of who you were before you knew him? And in light of who he really is and live a life of perpetual sourness. What are you grumpy about? Jesus is king. He's alive. What are you grumpy about? Friend, is Jesus the source of your joy, I wonder? Is he? Because if not, if you say you know him and yet your life is not full of joy of knowing him, that can we say we truly know what it means for him to be our king and love? To receive full pardon of our sins and be adopted by God and receive the Holy Spirit and have Christ as fulfillment of all of our needs should lead us to a life of joy and gladness, even when circumstances in this world are difficult, all because we locate our joy in something, someone who is not of this world. Don't you think? Charles Spurgeon illustrated like this. <clears throat> he said, a man cannot be really happy till his sin is pardoned because sin brings more or less a sense of condemnation. Picture a man in the condemned cell. Try to make him comfortable. We provide him a dainty supper. We sing him gladsome glee. We exhibit fine pictures to him. But he is condemned to die tomorrow and he loathes our feast and our fineries. Bring in a thousand pounds and make him a present of it. He looks at the gold sovereigns and says, what is this use of to me? Tell him that a rich man has left him heir to a wide estate. Yes, he says, but how can I enjoy it? I'm condemned to die. He's always in his dreams hearing this death kneel and picturing to himself the dreary scene when he is to be launched into eternity. If you could only whisper in his ear, her majesty has granted you a free pardon. He would say, you may take away the feast I feel too happy to eat. All the gold in the world cannot make me more delighted than I am now as a pardoned man. To follow Jesus is to enter into a happy experience. To know Jesus is like having the perpetual joy of a wedding. Joy is the ongoing characteristic of a disciple of Christ, as we talked about last week. Does that mean we will not feel sorrow or lament or mourning in this life? Of course, we'll feel those things. And such feelings are not wrong. In fact, they make good and right sense in response to our broken world. But what underlies the Christian experience of knowing Jesus is to be joyful and to rejoice and to celebrate. It means that our mourning because of things of earth won't last our whole lives. We know that. It means our lament won't last forever. It means we somehow find joy amidst our pain. Only the gospel can provide joy even in the midst of life's pain because we know that he who holds all things in his hands is the ones whose hands are nail-scarred to this day. 
is to know that pains are temporary, that they are for a purpose, that we can run to Christ's comforting arms over and over and over and over and over again, and that one day every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Is that not cause for joy, my friends? See, too often we locate our joy in something or someone else. It's only natural, right? And we all do it. I do it. Our circumstances are determinative of our joy in life. You may hear me, you hear me say this, and you hear me say this often because it's a primary temptation in our consumeristic culture. We are constantly told through every medium what we need in order to live a full and happy life. Isn't that true? What is Instagram? If not a constant reminder that we don't measure up. But hey, look at all the people who are more adventurous and fun and put together. Wouldn't you like to live like that too? And don't you want to be fit and take sweet vacations and eat expensive food and be an influencer and have people know you? Even our politics tell us what we really need, right? What we really need is to get the right fella, who happens coincidentally to be our fella, into office, and then everything will be better. Which, can I ask, has that ever happened in the history of ever? No. The problem in locating our happiness and hope anywhere but Jesus is that everything else can be taken away. Like this. You know that. Can't the stock market crash? Can't the housing bubble burst? Can't your banking account dry up? And your investments go down? Can your vacation home or lake house catch fire? And burn down? Can your sweet new car get totaled? Can a tree fall through your house? Or a flood come and ruin everything inside? So what, happy, what happens is your happiness or joy is tied up in becoming something or in you acquiring the next thing. What happens? You'll never actually be truly happy. And you become an idolater to boot. What happens if you find your joy and happiness in Jesus? Your joy can never be taken away. And you can enjoy the things of earth the way they were intended, not locating your meaning and joy from them. I mean, who among us hasn't been depressed or sad or worried or anxious when something broke or was ruined or plans canceled or because of relational problems and things like this? Haven't we all been sad or depressed or anxious? When you find your joy in someone who can't be taken from you, and you know he ha- you have him and he has you. And he becomes your everything. You will hold on to things of earth with a loose grip and you will find that your joy in life doesn't ultimately depend on anything on earth. Which really means you could truly enjoy things and people without using them or placing the weight of divinity on their shoulders. Only Jesus can carry that weight and he's happy to do so. Says Spurgeon once more, when we're told that Jesus is with us, we remember that his is a presence which causes intense delight. We have seen men with money who are not happy. We have seen men with honor who are not happy. We have seen persons in power with command of empires, yet they are not happy. But we never saw and never shall see the individual who has Jesus with him that is not happy. To be near him, to have him with us, is to have our fears relieved. Our grief soothes. Our wounds healed and all our sorrows turned to joy. One drop of Jesus' love would turn the whole sea sweet. Only a glimpse from Jesus' eye and the darkness is turned to noonday. Only one word from Jesus' lip and the tempest that raged becomes calm and the ruffled sea is still. 
I am with thee bespeaks the presence then of one who brings you delight. Friend, can I ask? Why don't you ask yourself truly, truly in your heart? Where do you locate joy? Does your joy rise and fall with things of earth or in Jesus? Look to Jesus and see that he alone is where ultimate joy is found to the point that even in our sorrow, we can have joy. The bridegroom has come and he has died, but he's alive. And he's with you always if you would but give him your allegiance. Jesus says, now is no time for mourning for I have come. Look to me and find life. Then let's have a celebration that will culminate in the ultimate celebration I bring at the end of the age. That seems like a cause to be joyful to me. What about you? Well, who could do this? Who could have this kind of joy? Only those who receive from Jesus, point number three, a new life. Only those who find from Jesus, receive from Jesus, a new life. We have seen that with Jesus comes a new way to relate to God, a new approach to salvation. And so, with this new approach to salvation must come a new approach to life itself, right? (laughs) Since now, Jesus is defined as life itself. It means that what Jesus is after is not your rote external piety. That's clear, right, from this. But he means to get your heart and make it new, which should flow out to deeds done for Christ and neighbor and God's glory. Let's return to the imagery of the new patch and old clothes and new wine and old wineskins. What is Jesus saying again? He's saying you can't put a new thing on an old thing and think you've done something productive or wise or long-lasting. You don't need to put Jesus on your old garment. You need what? A new garment (laughs) given to you by Jesus. You don't need to put Jesus in your old wineskins. You need new wine and new wineskins from Jesus. You guys see the lesson here? Jesus cannot simply be an additive to your life. He must come and upend the whole thing. He doesn't intend to improve an already put together person. He intends to completely remake a former broken rebel. Says Edwards again, the question is not whether disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agenda and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration. Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. Jesus means, do you know this friend, to make you new. He didn't intend to be a mere addition to your otherwise full and busy life. Jesus will not stay on the peripheries. He intends to be your all in all or nothing. He will not be part-time Savior and part-time Lord. And if he is to be received at all, he must remake you. What we need is to be made new, not simply improved. We need a new heart, not a pacemaker. And this is why Jesus' message is so hard for people, then as now, to accept. Who wants to be told that they need to be remade? Who who wants to be told that their religious rituals won't score them cool points with God? Who wants to be told that their sinfulness is so deep that it's a creator God coming and taking on flesh and dying in their place and rising from the dead to secure their salvation and bring them near to God? 
That's some tough stuff to hear in a world full of DIY and self-made men and women and self-help culture and constant Disney-esque message of just follow your heart, don't let anyone stop you because you're all you really need. Let's, let's return to our illustration from last week of that. Remember that house that's next to mine? That's haunted, remember? If you recall, the roof is caved in, the windows are busted, there's a tree, if you don't believe me, ask the brace. They know exactly what I'm talking about, all right? Windows are busted, there's a tree growing in the middle of it. The grass and weeds are grown up all around, tall as me, front door is sometimes open, sometimes not, because it's haunted, right? And surely it's full of critter and ghosts. And no one has taken care of it for decades. Truly, it's a wonder of science how it has withstood Hurricane Michael. Like, seriously. So let's say the owner decided to sell it and I bought it, which is something I would never do. But let's pretend, okay? What I wouldn't do if I owned it was paint the outside, put new windows in, and then try to sell it. It doesn't need some TLC. It needs a wrecking ball. Yes? It needs a wrecking ball. It doesn't need a makeover. It needs to be taken completely down and rebuilt. And so do I. And so do you. See, what Jesus is after is our hearts. He doesn't want us to come to him with our supposed impressiveness. He wants us to come to him in our brokenness because he's the only one who could give us a new heart. And this remaking of our hearts can be painful, but out of it will, be, will spring deeds done for the sake of our love for Christ and not because we're trying to earn his favor because we already have it. That's a big difference, isn't it? But do you see how incredible, incredibly loving and gracious and merciful and beautiful Jesus is? Do you? Because if you do, then you'll see how he cannot be a patch you add to your life. This is the temptation I see a lot in our culture. To add Jesus to whatever we got going on. And then change seemingly nothing about our lives. And suppose that we are Christians. Do you see the problem there? Jesus then becomes a means to an end. Rather than the end itself. He becomes a way for us to not go to hell, but not the central purpose of our lives. And that means we're claiming Christ because he's useful, not because he's beautiful. Friend, can I ask, are you merely making room for Jesus in your otherwise pretty busy life? Or is he the center of it all? Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, Jesus did not come to add our com to our comforts. He didn't come to help those who are already helping themselves or to fill life with more pleasant experiences. He came on a deliverance mission to save sinners. There is therefore an element in the gospel narratives that stresses that the coming of Jesus is a disturbing event of the deepest proportions. It had to be thus, for he did not come merely to add something extra to life, but to deal with our spiritual insolvency and the debt of our sin. He's not conceived in the womb of Mary for those who have done their best, but for those who know that their best is like filthy rags. Far from good enough. And that in their flesh, there dwells no good thing. He's not sent to be a source of good experience, but to suffer the pangs of hell in order to be our Savior. Can I ask, friend, I wonder, 
Is there an old garment you're hanging on to? What is the old wineskin you can't let go of? What captures your allegiance in a way nothing else does? What are you unwilling to let go of that you know is standing in the way of your fully receiving the new garment that Jesus provides? Are you trying to add Jesus to your life or have you released control so that he could upend your life and your heart and your thoughts and your desires and even your motivations? What is it in your life that you are giving devotion to that you know deep down in your heart of hearts is keeping you from the renovation Jesus is offering? What is it that you know is keeping you from more of him but you can't let go? And you've convinced yourself that you can't be without that other thing. What is it that is keeping Jesus from being the motivating factor of your life? I'm afraid that there are so many people, even self-proclaimed Christians, who reflect what Jesus said in verse 39. I don't want the new wine Jesus brings. I don't want the change it will affect. I don't want the cost it requires. I like my old wine just fine. Thank you very much. But don't you see that this posture is a hellish one? To receive the eternity that Jesus promises, we must surrender to him and be made new in this life. But the sad truth is, says Jesus, some people will not alter the way they look at him, and he knows that. And he knows that this will lead to a cross. He knows there will be people who reject the new way he brings. Some people will not taste the new wine of the gospel because one will not try what one does not sense the need for. And like the Pharisees of verse 31, they do not realize they need healing and thus never repent. But for those who do sense their need of repentance, there's rejoicing. There's celebration. There's feasting. Robert Stein said, even though Jesus' message is one of repentance, such repentance leads not to sorrow and mourning, but rather to the joyous celebration of forgiveness and membership in the kingdom. To know that the God of the universe, do you guys realize the weight of this? The God of the, you know the God in Genesis 1-1 who merely spoke and everything in the cosmos was showed up, saw us in our sinful and hopeless state and came down like a meteor on a rescue mission to do a new thing in order to get to us. That's cause for celebration. To know that we deserve death upon death, but receive life upon life, even now because of unmerited grace, calls for unfettered joy. To know that there's nothing we can do to get to God, that's bad news, but knowing that God came to us and requires us to bring only empty hands and a bended knee, that's the best news possible. And although Jesus is not after our mere deeds, Having him come and remake our sinful hearts from the inside out means we can now obey out of delight. Because we love him. And we know he loves us. We know that he loves us even when our deeds are imperfect. Because his love for us is based on his work, not ours. How much freedom is in that? Have you ever heard of better news than this? Like how can we not respond joyfully and obediently to our bridegroom coming to get us 
for the ultimate wedding day? How could joy not tinge everything we do, even when things here below aren't what we'd wish them to be? How can we not sacrificially serve and take up our cross for a king as merciful and graceful and loving and just as beautiful as this? You know, there's an old story about Abraham Lincoln going to the slave market before slavery was abolished. And whether this story is true or not, I don't know, but the story goes that Abraham Lincoln went to the slave auction one day, and he was obviously appalled by what he saw. And he was drawn to a young woman who was on the auction block. And the bidding began, and Lincoln bid until he purchased her. The bidding kept going higher and higher, but he was determined to purchase her no matter the price. And after he paid the auctioneer, he walked over to the woman and he said, you're free. Free? What is that supposed to mean, she asked. It means you're free, Lincoln answered. Completely free. Does it mean I can do whatever I want to do? Yes, he said. Free to do, say whatever I want to say? Yes, free to say whatever you want to say. Does freedom mean, asking with hope and hesitation, that I could go wherever I want to go? It means exactly that you could go wherever you want to go. And with tears of joy and gratitude welling up in her eyes, she said, then I think I'll go with you. God in Christ has come to the slave market and purchased us. He did indeed, verse 35, get taken away and was led to the slaughter, not because he was unwilling, hapless victim, but because he loves you so much that he came intending to die so that he could be with you. And you'd be with him forever and ever. And now, the only logical choice is to see that and to consider that and say with a smile and a voice tinged with unbridled joy, then I will go with you. It's a choice that we must make moment by moment and day by day. Every time we obey Christ, we're saying, then I will go with you, because that's the only choice there is. Even as it's freely taken, there's no option of being freed and saying, then I will go my own way. He leaves no alternatives. Have you made the choice to follow him? Maybe you never repented and given your life to Jesus. Maybe you, you like the taste of the old wine too much, but now you see that you need the new wine that Jesus offers. Today is the day of salvation. See who he is and say, I will go with you. Maybe you've been thinking you were a Christian, but you realize now you only thought that because of who your family was or where you live or because you think you're a good person, or because your religious ritual and deeds that you thought would make God happy, but your trust never truly rested in Him. You rested on your deeds and not Jesus. Then, friend, today is the day of true salvation for you. Be not ashamed of coming to Jesus and being made new. Now, if you have given your life to Christ, realize this. Jesus came to make you new and to continually make you new for the rest of your life. Be intentional on doing the heart work of going to Jesus and beholding his beauty and constantly living for his glory as you put him at the center of your life where he belongs. We must all embrace the new that Christ brings. We must lay aside all that hinders us from receiving the new life he gives us. If that means throwing away 
our old clothes, so be it. If that means throwing out our old wineskins, so be it. If that means drinking new wine when we're pretty sure we like the old one, so be it. Because the bridegroom is here. And what he brings is far superior to what we have to offer and what the world has to offer. And because the bridegroom is here, we can throw off what inhibits us and live a life of radically new joy because Jesus is better. And his kingdom is better. And thanks to his life, death, and resurrection, his overflowing grace, we get to be part of it. So cast off what hinders you, friend, and live a new life of Christ-centered joy to the glory of God and follow him joyfully no matter where he leads.